The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. That God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, it's a function of the privacy of our priesthood, which means that, that we do it uh, silently through silent prayer. It is no one else's business what our sins are, so we just simply confess to God. He is faithful and just, which means he is always operates the same way. He is consistent. It doesn't matter how many times we commit the same sin. It doesn't even matter how penitent, remorseful, how sincere we might be. Uh, that's not a factor because God knows that even though we've committed that sin and we're embarrassed and ashamed and we are bargaining with him not to go through any negative consequences, he knows that we'll probably commit it 4,789 more times before we finally die. So he is not impressed with our emotions. He is impressed by the fact that we are recognizing what Christ has done on the cross, that he paid the penalty for those sins in full, and so we are simply admitting them to him, and in return he always operates the same way, and he forgives us, of our sins and cleanses us from not only the sins we remember and confess, but from all unrighteousness. At that moment, we no longer are grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, so we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. We are restored to fellowship with God so that we can advance in our spiritual life. Before we open our Bibles to First John and begin our study there, let's open in prayer a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you we have this opportunity to study your word, the freedom that we have in this nation to study your word, to proclaim your word, to explain the gospel to people that we are not under any government 
restrictions, Father. We pray that you would continue to make that possible in this nation, that we might continue to enjoy the freedoms that our forefathers fought for, the freedoms that they died for and gave their lives for, that we might continue to promote the gospel and establish this nation on the basis of the truth of your word. Father, we thank you now that, that we have the tremendous insights of First John to to challenge us in terms of our spiritual life and spiritual growth. And as we study these doctrines, we pray that you would help us to understand them and that the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us how they apply in our individual lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First John is an epistle that is notoriously easy to translate from the original language of Koine Greek but is also notoriously difficult to interpret. It is one thing to decide what the language says in simple terms, simple vocabulary, and for the most part, simple grammar. But it is something else again to determine exactly what that means. What did John intend to communicate to us? What did the Holy Spirit, who inspired John and who is the divine author of Scripture, intend for us to understand from the Scriptures. Now, it's always important to recognize that before we ever get to application, that we have to do some detailed work in the text to make sure we have an accurate translation. The problem today is that we're in such a um, fast food sort of culture that we expect to drive up through the uh, express window at church and to be fed uh, uh, biblical fast food and be told what to do and how to think without ever um, uh, learning what the Bible actually teaches and why we believe the things that we do and what the Scripture says in such a way that we should be able to uh, at least be able when we get home after two or three weeks of repetition perhaps to think our way through what the Scripture says and to be able to understand it. As part of that, we always need to take time to study the background of an epistle. This is um, opening introductory work. We spent two hours already on the introduction to 1 John, and I need to review a few things we covered at the end of the last hour last week to set the stage for some things that we're going to get into this morning. We have to go through background. The one rule of biblical interpretation is that the Bible must be interpreted in the time, according to the time in which it was written. Now, that does not mean, like liberals come along and say, well, they lived at a time when they didn't have modern science or understand things like we do, so we have to reinterpret, or what um, uh, Rudolf Bultmann, a notoriously liberal German theologian of a former generation, said, demythologize the Scripture. See, the assumption of modern Protestant liberalism is that the Scriptures are loaded with myth and legend, and so modern man, who's so far above myth and legend, has to come in and demythologize the Scriptures. That's not what I mean by interpreting the Scripture in light of the time in which it was written. We have to understand what the circumstances were. We have to understand who the author was, something about his personality, which we've covered already. We have to understand something about those to whom he is writing, and what the circumstances were that occasioned the writing of this epistle. We have to understand something about the false teachers 
and what they were teaching in Ephesus and Asia Minor, an area now that we refer to now as Turkey, we have to understand what these teachings were, what these doctrines were that occasioned John to write this epistle. And once we do that, we will see some amazing parallels between what was going on in Asia Minor in roughly 90 A.D. and what is going on in late 20th century, almost to be 21st century America. Just think, another two weeks we'll actually be able to celebrate the the true shift of the millennium. Now, some have said that the uh, reason John's writing this is because he's got a major false teacher and major opponent in the uh, Ephesian area known as Serenthus. And Serenthus was notorious, a notorious heretic that had at one time claimed to be a Christian and was teaching uh, various false views at that time. What we know of Serenthus is that he denied the virgin birth He taught that Jesus was a righteous and prudent man, more so than any other man. He taught that uh, Christ, the Christ Spirit, ascended on Jesus at the baptism with John, John's baptism, and that the Christ Spirit departed from Jesus just prior to the crucifixion. That's a view known as adoptionism, and it denied the essential deity of Jesus Christ, that he was, uh, that Jesus was a man that the spirit of deity just descended upon during the time of his public ministry. That was rejected as heresy in the early church because it does not conform to the teaching of the Word of God. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ was full deity, undiminished deity and true humanity, united in one person from the instant of the virgin birth. It is from the virgin birth until his death on the cross that you have Jesus who is true humanity and true deity, and that without that combination, as stated in the Scripture, there is no salvation. Now, in this epistle, John does emphasize some doctrines that relate to that. He emphasizes the fact that Jesus is Son of God. We have, in our study of the Gospel of John, studied the meaning of that title, that in Jewish idiom, Whenever you said someone was a son of something, son of a liar, son of a murderer, son of a fool, that you were basically, whatever that second um, adjective is in the genitive, that that is an adjectival description of the individual. If someone was a liar, you would call them a son of a liar, not that their father was actually a liar. They were a murderer, they were a son of a murderer. That means they were characterized by murder. So if, uh, for example, another example is Judas was called the son of perdition from the same root word in Greek for destruction, uh, loss of life. It's in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. That's that same word, apolumi, that is the root of son of perdition, son of destruction, son of perishing. And it doesn't mean that his father was perdition but that he is characterized by loss, by that destruction, that perishing, referred to in John 3.16, that he was not a believer. So, a title like Son of God is saying that Jesus is God. He is full deity. It is not saying that at some point he was generated by the Father. 
It is not saying that at some point he was given birth to or that he had a beginning. That was uh, the Arian heresy that cropped up in the early 4th century around 310 A.D. We have studied the Arian concept that Arius was a presbyter in a church in northern uh, Egypt and he went around the Roman Empire teaching that there was a time when Christ was not. Today, the Arian heresy goes by the modern term Jehovah's Witness. And it is just another, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, the scripture says, and these old heresies that the early church met in the first three or four centuries are often duplicated and uh, reduplicated again and again in modern times. And we will see that the same is true for the Gnostic problem in the early church. So uh, John emphasizes the deity of Christ, that he is the Son of God, and also that he was incarnate as the Messiah, as eternal deity in human flesh from the virgin birth. Further, there are various ideas that were taught by uh, Serenthus that are not present in uh, 1 John. What we conclude from a study of the historical background related to Serenthus is that there were certain trends in the thought of the Greco-Roman world at that time, especially in Asia Minor, that were beginning to influence, that had influenced the culture at large and were having an impact in the church. And one thing that we need to always remember is that the church is always pathetic in their understanding of doctrine, so much so that we, that we, meaning the church as a whole, always tend to mirror or reflect the culture at large. So whatever uh, kinds of thought trends, philosophical trends are present in the outside culture, we also tend to find those shaping theology in the church. It is a sad but true fact that in most Christian churches today, what they teach as Christianity has, uh, is merely a, quote, baptized form of the worldly concepts taught in the world and outside of the church rather than based on sound biblical exegesis and study. And one reason for that is because what the Bible says usually runs so counter to what we've grown up thinking, what is popular among our culture, that, that to really trust the Bible as it is, puts us in such opposition to the thinking that surrounds us that very few people have the courage to take a stand for the Word of God alone. So we have that trend that goes on throughout church history. So there were various trends in the higher pagan thought of that day through Greek philosophy and Greek religious systems that were beginning to take form in the early church. Second, the second thing that was going on was an eclecticism. Eclecticism means that various things are being brought together. They, they may not be consistent, these ideas, but they're brought together into a new religious system. For example, in, by the middle of the second century, you have a thought form called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was not fully developed in the first century, but ideas that were present by the middle of the second century A.D., by 150 were present in the early church. You have, because Gnosticism is a blend of certain ideas in Judaism, some ideas in Christianity, ideas in 
Oriental mysticism, Zoroastrianism, the dualism of Zoroastrianism are present. Ideas of reincarnation from Platonism are evident. And these different disparate systems are borrowed from, different ideas are chosen and then merged together in a new eclectic system. Third thing that we noted was that converts from that kind of a background brought that religious verbiage and that religious understanding into the church and often try to interpret the Bible in light of their previous religious background. And the result was that it skewed and distorted what was taught in the Scriptures. But the uh, most glaring example of that in the, uh, in the New Testament, well, there are two. The most glaring example is the, uh, Judy, the Judaizers who would come into uh, various towns after Paul had been there. And when Paul had taught that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone, the Judaizers would come along and say, well, that's fine. Paul's really a good teacher. But if you really want to be saved and you want to have the, the, the greatest expression of, of uh, relationship with God, then you have to follow the Mosaic Law and you have to enter into uh, the Mosaic Law and the men through, through circumcision. So the Judaizers were taking their previous uh, understanding of God in, in Judaism and merging that with uh, Christianity and coming up with something new. And then the Greeks often would, coming out of a mystery religion background, where they had uh, worshipped uh, gods through ecstatic uh, involvement and uh, ecstatic utterance, like the uh, worshippers of Apollo would go up to the Oracle of Delphi, and the Oracle of Delphi would go into a trance and speak in tongues. And so they thought, hmm, the Bible talks about about speaking in tongues, so they must be the same thing. And they weren't. The Bible talks about speaking in tongues as speaking in legitimate languages and the term glossa. And I've spent 20 years trying to find one example of the term glossa being applied to the ecstatic utterance of the mystery religions, and I haven't found one yet. And I've spent hours and hours and hours searching through uh, not only classical Greek literature, but also Koine literature. And glossa, which is the Greek word translated tongue, uh, the gift of tongues, is really the gift of languages. And because there were uh, some similarities, you heard somebody speak something that you couldn't understand. Uh, when the Greeks came from this background and heard somebody exercising the legitimate biblical gift of languages, they interpreted that in light of their previous religious experience and that caused all of the problems with tongues in the church at Corinth. So converts would come from uh, various backgrounds and bring their preconceived ideas with them into the church. And that, then a fourth thing that we saw is that there's often a reinterpretation of Christian ideas by unbelievers. We've seen that in our modern day in the uh, fact that Hegel, who was a 19th century philosopher, an idealist, uh, which is similar to Platonism, picked up uh, the idea from Christianity that history is going towards an ultimate destination. And he used that to develop his concepts of the, uh, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, always moving towards an ultimate end. Marx then borrowed from him. That's why Marxism is often called a Christian heresy because the ultimate ideas of Marxist 
view of history is that history is linear and it's going somewhere, and most pagan thought has history as cyclical. So you see, Christian ideas are then picked, picked and chosen and brought over into a pagan reinterpretation. Now, what was going on in the ancient world in the first century was that you had uh, uh, influence from Platonism and Greek philosophy. Now, in Platonism, the highest form of reality... I know this is early on a Sunday. I don't want any eyes glazing over this morning as we delve into a little Greek philosophy lesson. Uh, in Platonism, the highest form of reality is in the, is in the realm of ideas. So that, to, to simplify it, there is, we'll draw a line here, up here is the realm of ideas or forms. And in Platonic thought, you would have something like an ideal chair. And then every chair that you sit, whether it's a Queen Anne dining room chair, or whether it's a lazy boy recliner, or whether it's a uh, chase lounge, or whether it's a metal chair down in the Sunday school department, whatever it is, you have different instances of chairs in reality. But these are merely shadow reflections in Platonic thought of the ultimate reality. So, reality is up here. What we see in everyday life is simply an expression, a shadowy reflection of ultimate reality. So that real significance is in the realm of ideas, which is why this is called a form of, of um, idealism. And what's down in the material world is less significant. Well, as things develop, what happened down here is that matter then becomes associated with that which is second best and in some systems is associated with that which is evil. And up here is the realm of spirit, and that's what is good. So you create a dualism between spirit and matter. What is material is, is evil, what is spirit is good. And that ended up with a, with a concept of God that divorced God so far from actual creation and matter because a good God can have nothing to do with matter because if matter is evil, then it would destroy God to come in contact with it. And that be, began, he started off with a concept of God which he never really defined or fleshed out. And this God sent forth various uh, cre creatures, and you have all grades of creatures here, and these are called eons. And it is these creatures that eventually create, or eventually create the earth. Now, this God is is in, is just an impersonal force. Eventually, what happened is this God is renamed the Demiurge, and that. Demiurge well becomes identified with Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And then an even more shadowy God gets put further back so that God becomes so out of touch. He's just an impersonal force. I want you to draw some analogies. Start drawing out. He's an impersonal force. It reminds us of slogans in movies like The Force Be With You. And we start seeing the modern analog in, in the New Age movement to ancient Gnosticism. 
there are tremendous similarities. So in Platonism, what happens is that, that God can't be associated with matter. Now, one particular uh, view that came up in the early church was called Docetism. And Docetism, spelled like this, D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M, from the Greek word dokeo, D-O-K-E-O, which means to appear. And in Docetism, Docetism taught that uh, Christ's human body was just uh, an illusion. He wasn't true humanity. He didn't have a physical body because, of course, if, if God were to align himself with real matter, then that would destroy God. And their slogan was, if he suffered, that is, actually went through physical suffering, he was not God. And if he was God, he did not suffer. Let me say that again. I started to see some eyes glaze there. If he suffered... He was not God. If he was God, he did not suffer. Now, to understand the significance of this for our lives, we have to understand that background. What they're saying is if Jesus really suffered, if he was really physical and went through physical suffering, he couldn't have been God because that would have countered, he would have been identified with material. Well, that means that you have no hypostatic union. You have no God-man. You don't have Jesus Christ establishing the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. Jesus Christ, therefore, is not living a life and solving problems and facing all of the various temptations and testings that we do on the basis of doctrine and the filling of the Holy Spirit and pioneering for us the spiritual life. That's why this is such a vital issue, because ultimately docetism and Gnosticism were attacks on the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of grace. And they were basically ways of saying doctrine doesn't work and doctrine alone isn't sufficient to solve the problems in life. So their slogan, if he suffered, he was not God. And if he was God, he did not suffer, is a direct assault on the entire Christian teaching on suffering and the way God uses suffering in the life of the believer to bring them to maturity. Docetism was extremely popular among the Greeks since it, the fact that it re- rejected a physical body for Christ removed the scandal that was in the minds of many Greeks that had a God who became actual man. So it's a compromise with worldly thinking in order to take away the offense of the incarnation. Now, Docetism then developed into another type of thinking called Gnosticism. And we have to understand Gnosticism to some degree. Not that I'm saying the problem in 1 John is Gnosticism. Gnosticism hasn't really developed yet. But these ideas in in an unsophisticated form are present in the culture at the time. By the time we have full-blown Gnosticism, it's only 60 years from the time this epistle is written. So it's, it's not that it just suddenly explodes on the scene. And, so, and somebody gives birth to those ideas in the next 60 years. These ideas are already there. They're just not thought through in as systematic a form as they are later. Now, what is Gnosticism? Well, let's break it down. I've got nine points to define Gnosticism for us. 
Gnosticism is difficult to define because it attached itself to various religious groups and absorbed religious ideas from just about everybody. And that way, it's akin to the modern New Age movement, which one writer uh, said is uh, the attempt to define the New Age movement is like nailing macrobiotic jello to the ceiling. You know, one writer said it was protean. Now, that was a new word for me, protean. That means it can take many shapes and many forms. And Gnosticism was that way. You had some Gnostic groups that were... Um, antinomian. They were licentious in their behavior because they thought, well, matter and spirit are so separated that it doesn't matter what my body does. Uh, I'm forgiven, so I can, at a spiritual level, I'm pure, but at a physical level, I'll always be a sinner, so it doesn't matter. I'll go out and get drunk and carouse and, and get involved in all kinds of licentious attitudes. And then at the other, at other extreme, Gnosticism also produced a number of groups that were very ascetic and emphasize moral purity to try to do away with the sinful aspects of the flesh. So there's all kinds of ideas uh, present in Gnosticism. It primarily merged ideas from Judaism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, Platonism, and Oriental mysticism. Second point, Gnosticism did not exist as a full-fledged system until the middle of the second century A.D. We know about Gnosticism in a, in a positive sense, primarily from a Gnostic community in Egypt. Uh, archaeologists uh, several uh, decades ago discovered a, several documents at a place called Nag Hammadi in Egypt, and uh, that dated to about 150 A.D. Other than that, the only reason we know about Gnosticism is, is because of the Christian apologists like Irenaeus, and Tertullian, and others who defended Christianity from the assaults of Gnostics in the late 2nd century A.D. Point number three, Gnosticism had two central beliefs. Two central beliefs. First of all, there was a belief in dualism. Ultimate reality was comprised of good and evil. Now, where do you see dualism evident today? You see it in... Um, Buddhism and in Eastern religions. In fact, there's a symbol that many of you have seen. It's on the Korean flag, and it's a circle. And inside the circle, you have a S-shaped line like this. And this side is usually shaded dark, and the other side is white. And the overall circle indicates the unity of ultimate reality, but it is divided between the dark and the light, the yin and the yang, the uh, the good and the bad, and so ultimate reality is comprised of both good and evil, and that's uh, the symbol for the the yin yang symbol, and is uh, you find it a lot of places today. It's been made popular by the New Age movement and the introduction of a lot of Buddhist thought in America in the last two decades. So there was belief in a dualistic world and belief in the existence of a secret code of knowledge that somehow if I learn this secret knowledge, that I will be able to overcome uh, life in the physical plane. This is uh, uh, emphasized in modern literature by uh, William Butler Yeats and some others who uh, 
are come have a dualistic idea in their thinking, and in much literature in the 20th century, not all, but there's a lot of literature in the 20th century, especially more recent decades, that exemplifies this type of thinking. Uh, fourth point: Gnostics believed that matter was evil, and that spirit is good. Therefore, there they had a problem explaining how a good God could create an evil world. We get right back to the same old problem that unbelievers and non-Christians always want to throw up to Christians, and that is, how can you believe in a good God when there's so much suffering and heartache and misery in the world, and, and you can just hear the, the, uh, their self-righteousness start uh, overflowing at that point, that, that you Christians, you can't answer it. Well, that's just false. Christians can answer it, first of all, because in the logical way in which the argument is set up, uh, they are assuming that, that goodness means that there is no end so great that allowing suffering to take place to achieve that end is a violation of the goodness of God. Secondly, their solution is that e- evil is just the natural part of reality and that evil is basically good. Now I see don't don't press your eyebrows so close together it's bad for the skin. Let's let's relax a little bit. See in the problem of evil the unbeliever always comes up and says, You Christians, how in the world can you believe that God is good when there's sin in the world? Well, let's ask them, what's your solution? His solution is that evil is is an inherent part of reality and is no different from good. Ultimately, that's why C.S. Lewis made the observation that ultimately all religious systems either go to Christian, can be broken down into Christianity or Hinduism. Because if you push the unbeliever, whether he's a secular atheist, an evolutionist, or whatever, he must admit that in his thinking, evil is normal. Well, if evil is normal, then there's no solution to evil. In Christianity, evil is introduced by the negative volition of the creature. God did not create it. God simply allowed it. He created creatures who had true freedom and true free will. They chose against Him, and evil is the consequence of that rejection of God. And therefore, God provides a solution for evil at the cross, not just for spiritual life, but ultimately there is the redemption of the entire universe based on what Christ did at the cross. So in Christianity, there is not only an explanation of evil that is not inherent to reality, but there is an ultimate solution to evil, and no other system of thought in history has that. And so what we should do whenever anybody questions us about that is start off on, remember, a good defense is a good offense. And you start off by saying, well, explain to me your solution to the problem of evil first. So the Gnostics had a problem. They couldn't understand how that... uh, could be, so they developed that hierarchy I had on the overhead a minute ago where they set up an infinite chain of beings between the God and then the creator of the earth. Fifth, for in Gnosticism, there's no necessity for an atonement. That's just a judicial penalty that the human Jesus had to put up with, but Christ the Spirit of Christ disappeared or left the body before the cross because there, there is no way that a physical death... See, they make a mistake there of under, not understanding spiritual death, but that physical death could be related to the problem of evil. 
Point six, for the Gnostic, true knowledge comes through intuition. It's intuitive. You just have these, these intuitive insights into the nature of reality, and therefore you know what truth is just because you've had this, this experience this, this, with, with gnosis. Whereas in Christianity, knowledge comes through the revelation of God that he has spoken into history through man, mankind, that he has... Uh, directed men through the Holy Spirit in the process of inspiration so that his will and his word would be accurately recorded and without error in the original documents. Now that brings us to point seven, that gnosis means knowledge and simply relates to an academic or an abstract knowledge which in itself becomes an object of worship. That's why we must always guard against making simple knowledge of Scripture the end all of the Christian life. It is not. It is the filling of the Holy Spirit plus the knowledge of doctrine plus the application of doctrine that produces spiritual growth. It is not just knowledge. There's a lot of people who know things about the Bible. A lot of people have a tremendous amount of academic knowledge about the Bible but it is not coupled with the filling of the Holy Spirit and it does not yield application in their life, so it just becomes another form of Gnosticism. It becomes a Christian form of Gnosticism where my knowledge of the Bible becomes the end all in my Christian life. So Gnosticism also has many parallels in modern society. What we see is that in the ethical system among the Gnostics, this is point number, point number eight, is that um, they looked at the life of Jesus as something of a myth. So that the early church mythologized the life. They added all this deity, divine stuff to the life of Jesus. And in some places, like in Corinth, they worshipped, and in uh, Corinth and in Colossae, they worshipped intermediate spirits, demons, and angels. Um, they also uh, tried to uh, demythologize the Scripture just to get the heart of who the real Jesus was and what this secret Gnostic teaching was in the Bible. And that has parallels in 19th century religious liberalism because they were demythologizing the Bible, taking all the supernatural out of the Bible. There's also a strong element of intuitive thinking and among the 19th century uh, liberal theologians. I once got in a discussion, I've since been proven right, got in a debate with a man at Dallas Seminary who said, no, the religious liberals were rationalists. Yes, they were rationalists, but mysticism is rationalism taken to its infinite end. Because in rationalism, what you're saying is the ultimate solutions come from the mind of man. And in rationalism, you arrive there through logic through the uh, consistent use of logic. In mysticism, it's still in the mind, but you get there just through these intuitive leaps, these intuitive flashes of insight into the nature of reality. It's still rationalism. It's just rationalism gone to seed. So that means that much of modern Christianity has been rendered vulnerable to the mystical insights of New Age methodology, which has come across especially in the more charismatic wing of Christianity because 
they, their claims to be open to the Spirit. But the failure in Pentecostal theology is to dis- make a distinction between the intuitive insights of a, of a Muslim or the intuitive insights of a Buddhist and their intuitive insights. And if you look at the Word of God, when God reveals Himself to man, even if it's subjective, there is always, always objective verification. It's testable and it is verifiable. That's why Jesus performed the kinds of miracles that He did. He gave sight to a man who was born blind. He had a constitutional defect. You have the healings of people who have leprosy that nothing can cause that to go away. They had constitutional defects that could not have any psychosomatic uh, root or psychosomatic solution. These are just modern forms of Gnosticism. And we live in an age, the New Age movement is a modern expression of Gnosticism, and it consequently affects what goes on inside the church because the church always seems to mirror the views of the outside of what goes on outside the church. Now, in the church at Ephesus, these false teachers who John says were went out from us, but they weren't of us. In other words, he is saying that they were once part of the apostolic group. They weren't Not that they were apostles, but they were associates, assistant pastors, helpers, who at one time had sound doctrine, but they have been seduced by these false teachings that are present in the culture. So now they are no longer of us, and they are. there is a breach in fellowship between us and them. And he is saying in his essential message that this breach in fellowship between these false teachers and those who follow them and us is a breach based on false doctrine, that because they believe something other than what was revealed to the apostles, they are not in fellowship with us, and consequently they're not in fellowship with God, because they are teaching false teaching. Therefore, we concluded last time that fellowship is based not just on right behavior, but on right belief and right behavior. It's on correct thinking and correct actions. So the spiritual life, therefore, begins with what we believe and how we think, not just on how we act. And that's something that I find is missing in much of modern evangelicalism, where you go to church and you have a 20-minute sermonette for Christianettes, and you're taught how to live in terms of application, but you're never taught how to think, the kind of thinking that a Christian must have in order to interact with the thoughts and ideas surrounding him and the culture surrounding him so that you're, you're not just going through external actions. And that's what, that, that, that approach of just emphasizing the application re- reduces itself to a very superficial form of Christianity. It is, in essence, a legalistic form because it's like the legalism of the Pharisees. And Jesus said that the Pharisees were like whitewashed tombstones and that if you were going to clean the dish, you had to start on the inside and not just clean the outside of the dish. So it starts with an internal transformation that is a transformation based on how we think, not just what we do. There are a lot of religious groups that have people who have tremendous forms of external morality. But their thinking is wrong. Because their thinking is wrong, there's no fellowship with the apostolic doctrine, and therefore no fellowship with Christ. 
So Paul is, I mean, John is saying that by rejecting the true biblical doctrines about Christ, these false teachers had cut themselves off from fellowship with the apostles and cut themselves off from fellowship with God. So the issue is going to be the person and work of Jesus Christ, but he's going to approach it from the format of the apostolic message. Let's read the first four verses of 1 John. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested... And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. See, this is the purpose here. We're going to say these things so you can have fellowship with us. It's based on doctrine, based on agreement with the message. See, that's how when we'll get to it in our exegesis of verse 1, But it shouldn't be translated Word of Life, capital W. It should be translated the message related to life. Remember in John's Gospel, he said, or Jesus said, I came to give life and to give life abundantly. I didn't come like the thief to destroy, but to give life and to give life abundantly. Giving of life, phase one, is eternal life at the cross. When we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we are given eternal life. Everlasting existence in the presence of God once physical death or the rapture occurs. Secondly, Jesus said, I came to give it abundantly. This is the Christian life, phase two. He's giving two things. Now, what John is going to explain in 1 John is the second category. Not how to enter into a relationship with God and have eternal life, but how to have that abundant life. And it's based on a full understanding of the of the apostolic message. So he says, The life was manifested, we've seen and bear witness, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father. So he's saying that fellowship with us is the same as having fellowship with God. If you don't have fellowship with us, you don't have fellowship with God. If you don't agree with our doctrine, which we got from God, you can't agree with God's doctrine. If you don't agree with God's doctrine, then you're out of fellowship with God. So fellowship ultimately is not just based on right behavior, but on right and correct belief, belief that agrees with the apostolic body of truth. And then he says, And these things we write to you, so that our joy may be made complete. Ultimately, that's the purpose, is to reach that apex of Christian maturity where we have the inner happiness of Christ, where he said, my joy I give to you. Now, that's the introduction, and it'll take us a little while to work through this, because this is one of the most complicated and complex Greek constructions uh, in the New Testament. In fact, I have worked and worked and worked on this because John starts off in the first part of verse 1 and he goes down to the phrase, and our eyes handled, concerning the word of life. And at that point, um, you have a first digression when he says concerning the word of life and then he interrupts that digression with a parenthesis in the New American Standard. It's set off by uh, M dashes 
and other Bibles, I think King James sets it off, sets off verse 2 as a parenthesis. It's obviously a digression. So he starts off with one digression concerning the word of life. In the middle of that, he inserts a second digression. And then he comes back to it and has to remind us in verse 3 of what he had said in verse 1. So what is the flow of thought? And what does this actually mean? And how do we understand it? John begins this letter without a salutation or formal address. That's a clue. I do not think that this was originally written as a letter, but like James and like Hebrews, message, a a sermon. He originally taught this, and then he reduced it to writing. While James has a brief introduction or salutation, James is really in the format of a three-point sermon. Hebrews does not have a formal introduction, and no, it has no statement of who the author is, and it too is is written in the form of a of a um, uh, the oratorical format of the ancient world. So this was probably a, a message that John gave as he traveled, and then he reduced it to writing so that it could be spread out among different churches. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have uh, cassette tapes at that time. So the way you would pass around a message was reduce it to writing, and then it would be taken out as an ency- what's called an encyclical epistle and read uh, from church to church. Now, as we get into this, uh, I want to take some time to, to try to understand the structure of this verse. We've looked at this, and the reason I say that, uh, look at the end of verse 1. Concerning the word, oh, am I not on? Thanks. Bryce and I had to do a little work on the computer during the uh, break and had to cut everything off, so it'll take a minute for it to come up. If you look at verse 1, at the end of your verse 1, where it says, Concerning the word of life. Now, Concerning the word of life, word of life is a message. It's logos is the word there translated word, and here it's not a reference back to Jesus. John wants us to think that. I'll talk about that in a minute. He wants that to definitely come to our mind. But here it should be translated the message of life. If you notice in verse 2, he doesn't come back to talk about the logos. He's explaining life. That tells us that the emphasis in the phrase word of life is not on word. He's not saying, I I talk concerning the Lagos, which is a title of Christ that he used in John 1. But I'm talking about the word of life. And the life was manifested, he says. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. So the subject of verse 2, or verse 2 helps us to interpret verse 1. But when he says concerning the word of life, that's message of life. And you don't see a message, you don't behold a message, you don't handle a message. So when you get to the phrase in the Greek, peri, um, the preposition peri concerning the word of life, it doesn't modify the phrase, the relative clauses, what we've seen, what we beheld, and our eyes handled. It's going to modify the main verb, whatever that is. And so, for that reason, I say concerning the word of life is our first digression. And then he has to explain what he means by the phrase word of life. And that's the purpose of verse 2. 
So, before we can get very far, we have to get a grasp of what this lengthy, complex sentence actually says. The best way to do it is to take out verse 2 and see what to catch the flow of thought. Because that's a parenthesis. It's merely there to explain and to help us interpret the meaning. He starts off, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our eyes handled concerning the word of life, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Now, we can even take out the phrase, that repetition of the phrase there, what we have seen and heard, because that's there simply to recover the train of thought after the Anakaluthan of verse 2. So it, it should be read, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That catches the main thrust of this, this opening sentence. The main clause is, we proclaim to you. The main verb is uh, the verb translated proclaim. Everything else is going to, in this whole sentence, modifies the verb. That tells us that, that we ought to look for something uh, in the accusative case that will define the object of the proclamation. Remember, in Greek, as in English, the accusative case indicates the object of the verb. So we should look for the object to define the content of the proclamation. That's what John is emphasizing here, is the content of the proclamation. The fellowship is not based simply on right behavior, but it is based on a correct understanding of the content. That is, right thinking and doctrine. In other words, he is saying that wrong, wrong doctrine destroys fellowship. Wrong doctrine is doctrine that is not in agreement with what the apostles taught. The apostles taught a body of doctrine that was revealed to them under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit and taught by them by Jesus Christ during the three years that they were associated with him in his public ministry. Therefore, to break fellowship with their doctrine is the same as breaking fellowship with God's doctrines. So to break fellowship with them is tantamount to breaking fellowship with God. So before we can get back into an analysis of the first verse, we have to understand something about where we're going. The old saying, you have to begin with the end in mind, helps us to break this thought down. He's writing so we can have fellowship. Now, there's a certain amount of disagreement about the meaning of fellowship. It comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means to share in something, to take part in something, to have something in common, to impart something, or to have rapport between people. Now, the question is, does this signify... Here's the, this is a crucial question. Does this signify having a part in salvation and sharing in the suffering of Christ on the cross, like Romans 6, 1 through 6, which talks about our identification with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, which then would make fellowship equivalent to salvation? Or is fellowship here talking about our day-to-day -day relationship with God? If we turn over to... To look at 1 John 2, 12, and 13, we will find the answer, discover the answer to our question. 1 John 2, 12 through, actually 14, 
John writes, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. That is, we've studied that. Name relates to character. So for the character of Christ's sake, because of what he did on the cross, your sins were forgiven you. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you children because you know the father. I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is not a description of unbelievers. He's writing to believers, those who have, are already saved, those who have already, they've had their sins forgiven. That, remember, we talked about the fact that there are two categories of forgiveness in the New Testament. There is one use of the word forgiveness that relates to the doctrine of Expiation. Expiation means to forgive a debt, and we have been uh, uh, the the uh, decree of our debts. That is, our sin was nailed on the cross and canceled there. That's the doctrine of expiation. And you, just like we use the word forgiveness today to forgive a debt, relates to the forgiveness uh, related to Adam's original sin and all pre-salvation sin. Well, just as the word salvation relates to salvation at the cross, phase one, the word salvation can also relate to the ongoing development of the spiritual life sanctification. So forgiveness has two meanings. The first is expiation related to salvation, and the second is our ongoing forgiveness for post-salvation sins. Well, the use here is pre-salvation sins, and the description in 12 through 14 is all of believers. So obviously, fellowship here is not talking about entering into a relationship with Christ or God, but enjoying the benefits of that. So it is the ongoing relationship of the believer with the Father in time. Now, what we see here is the, now we go back to verse 1 and we see that there's a stair step of clauses. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and our hands handled. Now, those three clauses, which are clause 2, clause 3, and clause 4, the first verse, all have, they start off in the Greek with a particle that looks like that. And then they are followed by a first-person plural verb. And the subject is in the form of the verb, and the subject is we. The first clause is different. The first clause is parallel, though. It starts off with the same Greek word, ha, and then it has an imperfect third-person singular verb from a me, uh, meaning to, to be what was from the beginning. Now, the difficult thing in understanding this in the Greek is this word, this particle here, is the same in different constructions. It can be the definite article. Now, I don't. Once again, don't let your eyes glaze over here. Now, stay alert. It can be a definite article that relates to a nominative, that means it's the subject of the verb, masculine, singular, noun. 
or it can be a relative pronoun in the accusative case. Now, a lot of people have made the mistake over the years of interpreting that that first ha at the beginning, that first what, as referring to the person of Jesus Christ. It doesn't relate to the person of Jesus Christ for the following reason. It is part of a parallel structure of five relative pronouns developed in verse 1 and then again repeated in verse 3. Those cannot be definite articles because it would be a third person singular definite article and in the other four clauses you have a plural verb and you can't have a singular subject with a plural verb. Uh, The subject must agree in number with the verb. Therefore, the only solution is that all of these are definite articles. Furthermore, when you understand that the main verb is we proclaim down in verse 3, then you have to look for the direct object, and the direct object is verse 1. It is a complicated sentence. What Paul is giving us is the object of the verb in verse 1, and we don't even know what the verb is till we get down to verse 3. And, we need, and now we're talking about, we also need to know what he's explaining. We proclaim to you, what are we proclaiming? Concerning the word of life. Let me restructure this so it makes a little more sense in the English. We're talking about the word of life, the message related to the abundant life. That's really the subject. So, if you're going to paraphrase this to get the best understanding in the English, it starts off concerning the word of life. What we beheld, what, we, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled, and then the parenthesis of verse 2, what, and then what we've seen and what we heard we proclaim to you. See, it's really saying concerning the word of life which we proclaim to you. And then it's going to tell us some important facets about what this message of life is. That this is not something that is merely spiritual, but this message has physical dimensions to it because it's not just this upper level abstract gnosis knowledge, but it affects everything that goes on in the physical dimensions of our life. Because if Christ did not appear physically in the hypostatic union, so that he was not only undiminished deity, but also true humanity in every sense of the word, then we do not have a precedent for the spiritual life. And what he's talking about is not entering into spiritual life. He's talking about developing and living the spiritual life. And if Jesus Christ did not appear in true hypostatic union, which is the union of his deity and humanity at the point of the virgin birth, if Jesus did not have true hypostatic union, then there is no basis for the spiritual life in the church age. Because the precedent for the spiritual life in the church age is not the Mosaic law, because the Mosaic law wasn't the path of life. That's clear in numerous passages in Scripture. The precedent for the Christian life is the hypostatic union. Because Christ, even though He was true, uh, our undiminished deity, was true humanity and in His humanity relied exclusively on the filling of God the Holy Spirit to live the spiritual life. And that is how He exemplified for us and set the pattern for the spiritual life for us 
in the church age. So the point, you boil all of this down, what, what John is telling us in these first four verses is that if we don't have a message of life, and in the gospel, the message is the man, and the man is the message. But what he's talking about here is the message, not the man, but since you can't separate the message from the man, John wants us to understand it's the message, but he doesn't want us to forget the man. So he uses a lot of double entendres here. Now, we've just gone through two and a half years of our study in John. And we've seen that time and time again, John is the master of the double entendre. He uses words that have two or three meanings. He's emphasizing one, but he wants those other two to be backpacked along with it into the concept so we don't forget it. That's why he uses phrases in verse 1 that remind us of John 1. In John 1, he's talking about in the beginning, that is the beginning of creation, the Logos, that is a title for Christ there, already was existing. It's the imperfect of a me. He already was existing. In the beginning, the Word was already existing, and the Word was God, full deity, and the Word was with God. Now, when he comes to verse 1, he's not talking about a person. These are, rel- these are neuter accusatives. A neuter doesn't refer to a person. It refers to the message. He's not talking about the, per- the person, but the message is the man. So don't forget the man, because without the man you don't have the message. So he says what was from the beginning, but he doesn't use in arche, which is the prepositional phrase he used in John 1. He uses op arche, from the beginning. Now, it's not the same beginning. He uses op arche several times in John, and there, it's a non-technical phrase. Sometimes it's talking about the beginning of creation. Sometimes it's talking about the beginning of the fall of Satan. He was a liar from the beginning. Sometimes it's talking about just the beginning of Christ's uh, public ministry when he began to teach about the gospel and the uh, spiritual life. And that's what it's talking about. The message that was from the beginning of the Incarnation. From the first time the Christian message came, we witnessed it. John did. We saw that in our study of John 1. When, when Jesus came out of the 40 days in the wilderness and came back to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was standing there with two of his disciples, and he, he said, Behold, um, a man whose uh, sandals I'm not worthy to tie. And these two disciples, one of whom was John, young John, probably 19 years old, uh, left John the Baptist ministry and followed Jesus at that point. So he's saying, from the beginning of his ministry, I've witnessed these things. And that brings us to another point that we have that's crucial to understand that, and that's the use of this first-person plural in John 1. All the way through here, he uses this first-person plural, what we beheld, what we have seen. Who's he talking about here? Obviously, it could include the apostles, but John is using an editorial we, which means he's really emphasizing his own personal witness. And this really helps us break apart verses 5 through 10, because there when he uses the we, he's admitting the fact that he sins, that he can sin, that there is no super spiritual life that the believer enters into that frees him from sin, and that there is a solution for sin that he uses just as everybody else, every other Christian must, and that's 1 John 1, 9. So the we here is, is, uh, is a we-I. What was from the beginning, 
what I heard, what I saw, what our eyes, be, what my eyes beheld, and handled concerning the word of life. He's saying I, I, I had the empirical evidence before me of what this abundant life is like. Jesus Christ demonstrated it in the incarnation, and just as it was possible for him, because he did it not in his deity, but in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, so that life, it can be our life if we rely upon it on the basis of the filling of God the Holy Spirit. And that's the message of First John, is what that abundant life is going to look like, and how we as believers can advance in that spiritual life. So next time we'll come back, review some of this again, so the confusion will somehow be be lessened, because it's very difficult construction, very difficult the way that John has put this together, and then we will continue our study in the spiritual life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that Jesus Christ is uh, the source of life. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life, no man comes to the Father except by me. That Jesus is, it's not only a message, but it is the man. And the man is identified with life. John told us in John 1 that in him was the life. In him was life. So that he is uh, inseparably connected with the message of life. And that we cannot deny who he was without also destroying the significance of what he did. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that right now they would make that sure and certain. All you have to do is trust Christ as your Savior. You don't need to join a church, walk an aisle, promise God anything. Scripture says salvation is based on simple faith alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, challenge the rest of us with the uh, second offering that Christ gave, and that is that of the abundant life that we are as believers to advance to spiritual maturity, to have all that God has promised us in the rich fullness of life based on doctrine in our soul applied under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. We pray that we might be challenged by these things. In Jesus' name, amen.